Second Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What, I, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha says, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not even look at you nor see you. But now, bring me a musician. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry streambed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that streambed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Do you know what it is for God to overrule your plans? Do you know what it is like when God overrules your foolish mistake? Another question. Do you believe that every word of Elijah and Elisha was to be taken seriously? Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard, received, applied as you intend. And please cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. And I pray that this will be a word fitly spoken, 
to encourage somebody who needs exactly what will be said tonight. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you about God's overruling grace. To overrule means to reject or disallow by exercising one's superior authority. It's like when a judge has the official authority to decide against a decision already made. Uh, how many Scots are in the service tonight? Can I see any, any Scottish people here? Well, you may know, I don't know what you think about it, but a few uh, days ago, Nicola Sturgeon has asked for a second uh, referendum, and she wants it in 2018. The new Prime Minister, Theresa May, overruled and said 2020. Just thought you'd like to know that. But that's an example of overruling. Well, now, God is the supreme overruler. He has the authority to overrule. It is what he happens to be doing all the time. He works overtime, overruling our mistakes, intervening, stepping in, and letting us save face. So do you know what it is for God to overrule? Can you remember a prayer you prayed and you were so desperate for that prayer to be answered and God overruled? And eventually you said, thank you, that you didn't answer my prayer. Well, now, there are several themes in this chapter. Uh, there's a case for spending two or three weeks here, but I want to go as quickly as we can through the life of Elisha. But here are the themes in this chapter. For one thing, it's how the kings of Israel and Judah turned to Elisha when they are desperate. And then we're going to look at the ungracious response of Elisha to these kings. And then how God overruled Elisha's somewhat justified bias, but unjustified temper. Now, we saw last time how God affirmed Elisha's anointing despite his misuse of that anointing, cursing some boys because they made fun of his bald head. Well, Elisha abused his anointing. Uh, but the truth is, God stepped in and protected the anointing despite Elisha's losing his temper. And God sent bears to maul these lads. Well, now, this time, we're going to look at another not very happy aspect of Elisha's personality. You know, it gives us a glimpse into a prophet's imperfections. And surprising as it may be uh, to some of us, Elisha had a problem with controlling his temper. Is there anybody here that has a problem like that? Well, be encouraged. God used Elisha anyway. Now, you may recall that last time we talked about the external anointing and the internal anointing. The external referring to one's profile, one's public ministry, uh, and that you get to keep because the gifts 
are without repentance. They are irrevocable. But then there is the internal anointing, and that has to do with your personal life, what you are as a person with particular reference to the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are the gifts of the Spirit. They're irrevocable. They're the fruits of the Spirit that has to do with, with your personal life. And what I want to show today is how these two come together in a word. Elisha's prophetic gift did not kick in until his temper was under control. Well, the truth is, Elisha was horrible to the king of Israel. Now, it took uh, some grace for the king of Israel to ask the king of Judah to help out in a situation. Because you need to remember this. The king of Israel represented the ten tribes that broke away. And you had only Judah and Benjamin uh, in the south part. There was, was the king of Israel governing the ten tribes. And, uh, and so there was a, rival be, a rivalry between them. But one day, Joram, the king of Israel, went to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and said, I need your help. Because here's what happened. Uh, there had been a, a, an agreement for years that Moab would furnish Israel with lambs and rams for food and for wool, clothing. And then when Ahab died, Moab wanted to cancel, and so we're not going to do it anymore. So, Joram says we must attack Moab and make sure they keep this agreement. So he turns to the king of Judah. Normally they wouldn't be speaking to each other, but Joram was desperate. The king of Judah might have said, you expect me to do that for you? That's your problem. But he didn't. He said, yes, I will do it. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. All right, here's what happens. They take a circuitous route. They, they don't know their geography very well. And they go down the Dead Sea on the west side of the Dead Sea. And uh, before they know it, they have run out of water. It took, takes longer than they think. And immediately, Elisha uh, comes into the picture by way of a conversation. Because uh, uh, the king of Israel, Joram, immediately thought, God is judging us. We're going to die. Moab will take us over. We're in real trouble. What are we going to do? It was at that point that Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet? Well, someone said, well, there is Elisha. Oh, Jehoshaphat said, he's a good man. The word of the Lord is with him. And so now Elisha, who ought to have been the one to mention, uh, Joram should have mentioned Elisha. He was too embarrassed to do it. But Jehoshaphat did. But now they come to Elisha, and they put their case. And here's what Elisha says to the king of Israel. He says, who do you think you are? What do you have to do with us? What do we have to do with each other? Look, go on back. Go to the prophets of your mother, prophets of your father. Well, immediately, 
the king, Joab, could have said, okay, but he defends himself to this extent. He said, we're in real trouble because the Lord is going to hand us over to Moab. And that means we're all in trouble. Well, at that point, Elisha says, well, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat being here, I wouldn't even speak to you. In other words, he treats the king of Israel with utter contempt. He was horrible to him. Now, here's the thing. There was truth to what uh, Elisha said to him. Because we know that Joram Joram was not a godly man. Wasn't as bad as his parents, but he was still not a good king. Jehoshaphat was. He, He was a godly king. And so there's truth to what Elisha said. But the point is, Joram is turning to Elisha, even though it was Jehoshaphat's idea to do so. And so what we have here is that Elisha is unable to help the kings until he calms down. He is so upset, and it's at that point he says, bring me a harpist. Some versions say, bring me a musician. Almost certainly it was a harpist. All because now Moab broke their agreement to keep uh, Israel uh, with food and with wool, and, uh, and that's when Joram decides to attack the Moabites. Now, when they consult Elisha, the prophet instead of being gracious and giving him a word, turns on the king of Israel. All right, why is this word important? Why should you listen to this tonight? Well, first of all, it's a demonstration of God's overruling grace. The truth is, God does this all the time with all of us. If it were not for the overruling grace of God, every person here would be undone, finished, long ago. I think of a thousand mistakes that I've made. Here I am. I'm still here. And all owing to the sheer grace of God. I predict, here's a prophecy you can take to the bank. When we get to heaven and we find out just how imperfect everybody around us was. You see, we tend to wear the mask now. And I put on a certain mask. You may not think it, but I do. Because I don't want you to know me. Not very well. I'm afraid you wouldn't like me if you really knew me. And if you began to see how frail I am, how imperfect I am, or you got Louise in a weak moment to tell you just what I'm like, you would say, I don't believe it. Dr. Kendall is one of the most godly, humble, (laughs) I laugh when they say that, men. You see, you just don't know. And we tend to look at these great saints, and we've got them up there on a pedestal. And Elijah would be one except we know how weak he was. Elisha now, is he any better? Well, this demonstrates uh, how a gift is of no value 
unless our personal life is in order. This is why Paul said, listen to this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, that's what Elisha had, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, which Elisha wasn't. Love is kind, which Elisha wasn't. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. And the truth is, Elisha had a gift. He had a gift of prophecy, but he knew it wasn't going to work. He got too upset. And so this shows how God uh, does not often get our attention until we're utterly desperate. You know, Joram, king of Israel, would normally never turn to king of Judah. They'd become, as I said, virtual enemies. Uh, but when things go badly wrong, sometimes even with wicked people, like with Joram, the name of God will come up. In fact, Joram says, has the Lord called us three kings together, that includes the king of Edom, only to hand us over to Moab. And it goes to show that those who are evil still know who their friends are because Joram knew he could turn to the king of Judah. Well, Joram also knew that Elisha was the only hope they had. It shows how people in the grip of sin can still sense it when God may be judging them. And that's what we have from the very mouth of, of Joram. It shows, too, how we should be thankful that if there are leaders who do know the next thing to do. So Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, says, but wait a minute. Is there not a prophet we can turn to? You know the phrase we use sometimes about the elephant in the room? That's when everybody's aware of the elephant, but nobody's talking about it. You know, everybody's thinking about it, but no one talks about it. Well, what you have in, in Jehoshaphat's comment is the opposite of that. He says, do you not realize what's at stake here? We need God, and nobody's mentioning it. Is there not a prophet? And that is what changes everything. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that a head of state called a nation to a day of prayer and fasting? Well, I happen to know it was in 1944 when D-Day was approaching. That's another story. But God stepped in and saved England. I remember writing a letter to the prime minister. I won't tell you which one during my time at Westminster Chapel because there was a time when we were in a real crisis. And I said, has anybody thought about calling the nation to prayer? And I finally got an answer to say, well, uh, to tell the queen that, that's what she should do. In other words, they, no one wants to take any responsibility. But this is the thing. The elephant in the room 
we all know what, what would solve everything. We need God. But no one will say it. But the king of Judah said it. And so we see before us a wonderful thing. This story demonstrates how quickly God can turn everything around. I want you to know that here were these people at the Dead Sea. They're running out of water. They need something fast. I mean, like now. And it looked bad. And they were desperate. They were seeing it as judgment from God. And that's when the king of Judah says, is there not a prophet? But you know what? After Elijah, Elisha did give his prophecy, it turned out exactly right. Overnight, 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 everything turned around. Perhaps you're in a situation as I speak that you think well, the problem is so recondite, so difficult, so vast that I'm in. And even if I had a breakthrough right now, I need more time, and it's going to take months and months. Do you know, it's, it says in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 36, in Hezekiah's day, they marveled, everybody, how quickly, like overnight, everything changed. And you need to know that that is what God is able to do. So it's a, dis, it's a dis demonstration of His unpredictable ways. And so here is how it happened. Elisha gives the promise, and he says, You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Do you know what he's forecasting? He's forecasting that there would be streams. At the moment, they were just ditches. He says, Water's going to flow. And it won't be because of rain. It's not going to be by melted snow because that wasn't possible down there at the Dead Sea. But the next day, lo and behold, water flowing in the streams. You could say, if I understand things correctly, that it was a pre-fall situation like in the Garden of Eden. As far as we know, it did not rain. The water in the Garden of Eden came up from the ground. There was no rain until Noah's day. And Elisha said, this is easy for God to do. And the next day, water coming right down the streams, but the water was not by wind. It was so still, as it were, that the sun, as it shone, coming up in the east in such a way that the Moabites thought they saw blood, and they thought the streams were full of blood, and they jumped to the conclusion. They said, you know what's happened? The kings have slaughtered each other. Let's go after them. Of course, it was a ruse. It was God's way of getting to do just that, and that is when Elisha's prophecy was fulfilled. The victory came virtually overnight. Now, one of the things I like about this story do you realize that music is a gift of God's common grace? Here's an interesting verse. Genesis 4, 21. That's where you have a story about Jubal, who's the father of music. You know what? This very morning, and I didn't even think about it until after this afternoon, I was looking at my notes. One of the first things I did this morning, I listened to Rachmaninoff's Symphony in E Minor. 
I love it. I switch off when I can hear Rachmaninoff. I used to feel a bit guilty because I'm not sure he was a Christian. But then I found out that it may have been. He was from Russia. He was part of the Russian Orthodox Church and wrote oratorios on the resurrection of Jesus. You know, Russian Christianity, I don't know if you know this, they're high on the resurrection. Western theology, it's the crucifixion. Eastern theology, resurrection. And Rachmaninoff wrote a lot about the resurrection, so it made me feel a little better, but even if he hadn't, I just love his music. Luther said, next to theology, I love music. I've got more in common with Luther. Do you know that coming up October 31st of this year, do you know what it is? How many know without my telling you? you count on less than one hand or two hands. The 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Theses that he posted on the door of the Wittenberg Church that turned the world upside down. I mean, you talk about something happening quickly. He writes out these 95 theses in Latin. Somebody translated, takes it down, gives it to a printer without Luther's permission. It spread all over Wittenberg, all over Germany. It reached the Pope who was infuriated and the world was never to be the same again. How quickly God can do things. Well, now, this is a wonderful story about how God is married to the backslider. You see, as I said, Israel was a part of the ten tribes. It broke away years before. The king of Judah might have rejected Joram's request and says, that's your problem. You're in trouble. You've rejected God, which is virtually what Elisha actually said. Well, I want us to look at Elisha's hasty reaction. Verses 13 and 14. He says to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father, prophets of your mother. And then he says, as surely as the Lord lives. You think something's really going to happen big now. He brings in the name of the Lord. It's not good what he says. If I didn't have respect for Jehoshaphat here, I would not even look at you. Not exactly 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus would not have talked like that. What Elisha did, first of all, it was unhelpful. He wouldn't win the Nobel Peace Prize for talking like this. Such moralizing was unnecessary. It was counterproductive in two ways. First, didn't help Joram. That doesn't want, it's not going to make him feel better. Didn't even help Elisha because he grieved the Holy Spirit. And now he can't even make his prophetic gift work at the moment. It was unfair. After all, wicked though Joram was, he was following Jehoshaphat's advice regarding seeking a prophet. Elisha refused to accept the obvious that Joram was reaching out. I need your help because God's going to turn us all over to Moab, including Judah. What he said to the king was unnecessary. Before you speak, ask if it will meet the other person's need. Ask yourself before you speak four things. Need. N. Is it necessary? Two. 
Is it energizing? You know, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who drain and those who energize. Do you want to be a drainer? Well, Elisha was a drainer. When you speak, ask, is it necessary that you say this? Does it energize? Does it edify? And does it dignify the other person? Jesus always gave people dignity. Well, Elisha failed on all these accounts. But now nothing is happening. And Elisha says, send me a harpist. Why did he do that? Well, the answer is he needed to cool off. I have to tell you something. I wouldn't have come up with this. I would not have. I was researching it and found that Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on Elisha and meeting and the way he speaks to Joram. And it was Spurgeon who said that Elisha needed to calm down, cool off, and he needed a harpist to help him to settle down. You see, that's why he did it. Now, it's not that prophecy and music together would be unprecedented. You've got the account in 1 Samuel 10 where the prophets, you know, with hearing music would prophesy. Sometimes that helped their prophetic gift to start working. And we know that David played for a paranoid king, uh, namely Saul, and Saul would settle down. Uh, so they needed time to calm down in order for Elisha's prophetic gift to start working. But then it started to work. And finally, they get the most beautiful prophecy. And he says, you will see neither wind, you won't see rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals, you'll be able to drink. And you know what? They needed it now. And we're told the next day there was the water. And Elisha said, this is easy. This is an easy thing. In the eyes of the Lord, I don't know what problem may be represented here. If we heard your story, we might say, oh, my word, you are in trouble. And that wouldn't make you feel better. Or we might say, you've not been very nice that God would let that happen to you. You must be really wicked. And that wouldn't make you feel better. You see, God knows every one of us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you know, we've all got skeletons in the cupboard. <laughs> Wake up, Bruce. <laughs> you may not believe it, but I don't see one halo here tonight. If we could see each other's thoughts and know the backgrounds and the past of every single person here, and they knew they could see us, we would die a thousand deaths on the spot. You see, the wonderful thing is that God knows that. But he's no respecter of persons and even made Elisha have to cool off and humble himself. You see, here's the thing. God can do anything. He can overrule your weakness. 
He's the, got the answer to every problem we can imagine. If the problem is no water, God says, leave it with me. If your problem is you need guidance, you need healing, you're in financial trouble, you need wisdom, God always knows the next thing to do. He always knows the next step forward. And in this case, there was only one thing to do. Send me a harpist. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. And God loves to do what no man, no woman would ever have thought of. He loves to do what is beyond nature, what is miraculous. And when it comes to your problem, anybody here got a problem at the moment? Think big. Think big. God can do anything. It's easy for Him to do. He can actually make water show up on a stream without any rain, without any wind. Well, what if Elisha had not cooled off and got this unchanging uh, word? Well, God overruled. He did it with Elisha. He did it with Elijah. Elijah said, I alone am left. Not true. But God used him anyway. The best of men are men at best. And I was thinking today, forgive me if you've heard me tell this a year or two ago, but when I was at Westminster Chapel, I always started my Sunday morning sermon preparation on Monday morning. I did. Monday morning. And I wanted to be sure by Monday evening if I had a beginning. That's just the way I am. I, I, I didn't want to go to bed Monday night. But there was one time, it only happened once in 25 years, when I came, not on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to prepare, Thursday, Friday, it was Saturday morning. I'd been preaching all over Britain all week long. I barely cracked the Bible to keep up my Robert Murray McShane read, reading plan. I did that, but didn't have any time to work on a sermon. And it was now Saturday morning. And it's not a good feeling when you've got to preach next day and you know every word's going to be played around the world. And it was 9 o'clock Saturday morning. I said, Lord, you know I've never put off like this before, but I couldn't help it. Please compensate today. I've got several hours. I've got today. Let there be no interruption. Right after I made that prayer, it was 9 o'clock that morning, Louise and I got into an argument. <laughs> In the hills of Kentucky, we would call it a dandy. She was horrible. I slammed the door, went to my desk, opened my Bible, Lord help me, give me something, give me something for tomorrow, deal with that woman, <laughs> blank sheet of paper, open Bible, nothing, 11 o'clock. Blank sheet of paper. 
Lord, please help me. Please help me. Noon, nothing. <laughs> One o'clock, two o'clock. Now I was in a state of panic. Lord, please, 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 please. You know that what I say tomorrow is going to be tape recorded. It's going to go all around the world. You've got to help me. Silence in heaven, except I thought I heard a faint word that said, really? <laughs> Three o'clock, four o'clock. You see, I was waiting for her. I went, I can see her now in the kitchen next to the refrigerator. She was tearful. I looked at her and I said, honey, it's all my fault. I am so sorry. Well, she said it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. I said, nope, it's all <laughs> my fault. And I am so sorry. We kissed, we hugged. Blank sheet of paper, Bible, feeling altogether different. And I promise you, I give you my word, that in 45 minutes, I had everything I needed for Sunday morning. I want you to know that the thoughts just began to flow. They began to flow. I could not write them down fast enough. And in 45 minutes, I thought, I've got it. I don't need anything more. I'm ready to preach tomorrow. You can accomplish more in five minutes when the Spirit comes down than in five years when you're trying to work it up. <laughs> Taught me a lesson. You see, though we make stupid mistakes, it's good to know that God isn't finished with us yet. He could have rebuked Elisha for that. He overruled instead. He could have rebuked Elijah on Mount Carmel when he says, I alone am left. But he overruled. Has God overruled lately in your life? Can you thank him for the way, despite the way you were? You weren't very nice. You, you weren't, it, it wasn't your finest hour. But God overruled. We're all indebted to his grace. And I want to assure you that whatever is happening in your life is for a purpose. And God can turn things around so quickly that he will step in, never too late, never too early, always just on time. Let me first address anybody here. Your life in a mess, you're in real trouble. You're trying everything under the sun. The elephant in the room, ignoring the obvious. You need God. You need God. And is there someone here at the moment, you know that if you were to die today, you would not go to heaven. But that's the first step that can change. Would you pray this prayer? You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in your heart. There may be only one person that needs to pray this prayer, but you know who you are. You say this, Lord Jesus, I need you. 
I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. 